Good morning, and uh, I bring with me the greetings of uh, my own home congregation, Broughty Ferry Presbyterian Church. Can you turn with me in your Bibles to the passage we read from the Scriptures just a few minutes ago, Matthew chapter 12 and the section verses 38 to 45. And let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us as we read your Word. He would help us to believe it. He would help us to understand it. And he would help us to do it. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If only God would do something wonderful. If only God would perform some heavenly miracle. If only God acted in some unusual way and produced a spectacular phenomenon. If only God would reveal himself in some supernatural way, then I'll believe. If I could only see God face to face, then I'll believe in him. Now, I'm sure we've all heard people say things like that. Perhaps we've thought them ourselves, and perhaps some of us have even expressed our thoughts in this way. And if that's the case, then let all of us take note, because this passage in God's Word has the answer. During the three and a half years of his earthly public ministry, all kinds of people came to the Lord Jesus for a whole variety of reasons. Some came seeking healing from disease. Some came seeking mercy from God. Some came seeking a, a settlement of a family dispute. Some came out of curiosity. Some came to Jesus in order to argue the toss with him. Some came to try and trip him up and expose him as a phony. Some, indeed, came to Jesus to kill him. Now, whenever the Lord Jesus was faced with a genuine request for help, he responded by granting the help that was asked for, sometimes even more so, and usually immediately. But whenever certain clever and inverted commas people came to try and best him in an argument, he usually responded by exposing the fundamental errors and their ignorance of what the Bible really teaches. A bit like a, a world-class tennis player, the Lord Jesus would lob the ball back into his opponent's court with such power, such velocity, and such accuracy that it was impossible for them to return the shot. Now, in this passage of the Bible and the preceding chapters, there appears to have been opposition to the Lord Jesus from some religious leaders, not all of them, but from some religious leaders. Wherever he went, following whatever he did. They always seemed to be there. In such cases, Jesus revealed his divine authority, including him being Lord of the Sabbath in verse 8, 
He revealed his divine authority over disease and his divine authority over demons. Earlier in this chapter of Matthew's gospel, the Lord Jesus had miraculously cured a man with a withered hand, verse 13. And following this, in verse 15, he miraculously cured a whole lot of people. Then in verse 22, he miraculously healed a man who was demon-possessed and also blind and dumb. Now, all of these miracles mentioned here were immediate. They were obvious. They were beyond argument, even by his most bitter opponents, his opponents whom he exposed and warned concerning the danger of a divine judgment coming upon them for their hypocrisy, their duplicity, and their opposition to the truth of God, and their opposition to the person of God, the Lord Jesus. Now, it is in such a situation, it is in this context that we read in verse 38 of a request for a miraculous sign. We read some of the scribes and Pharisees, they were theologically educated religious leaders, were asking Jesus for a sign. Why did they do that, I wonder? He, Jesus had just done a variety of miraculous healings, including demon expulsion. We're witnessing a further four or 44 miraculous signs satisfy them or convince them of who Jesus really is? I actually don't think so. The human heart, and we're given an insight here, the human heart in its rebellion against God has an almost insatiable hunger for signs and wonders. These men had so hardened their hearts against the testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus in verses 25 to 32, that the Lord Jesus warns them of the real danger of committing the unpardonable sin in verse 32. Tickle people's ears with novelties. Amaze their eyes with wonders. Thrill their thoughts with theories. Mesmerize men with miracles. But don't dare confront them on account of their outright, downright, stubborn unbelief. Don't dare expose the reality of the sin that reigns deep in the hidden recesses of their hearts. Jesus didn't do miracles to order, whether it came as a suggestion directly from Satan in the wilderness, you're hungry, turn the stones into bread or else as a request from the Pharisees. <clears throat> so how does the Lord Jesus respond to this request for a further miraculous sign? Firstly, by the sign of Jonah in verses 39 to 41. It was an evil generation indeed that ate the Savior's bread when miraculously provided but spurned the Savior's claims when personally applied. It was an evil generation that had no ears for the teaching concerning the true nature of the kingdom of heaven. And it was an adulterous generation indeed that had played the harlot with the trimmings and trappings 
of the divinely given religion, but had rejected the one whom that religion was all about. <clears throat> they took the things of God that were a means to an end, pointing them to the Messiah Christ, and made these things into an end in themselves, and so dismissed Christ as a blasphemer. The Lord Jesus warns them of the spiritual danger that they were in by citing the example of the prophet Jonah. He was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, the great sea creature. That is, Jonah had experienced the likeness of death and burial and then resurrection. And his ministry to the heathen inhabitants of Nineveh was such that the city repented of their sin and turned from their idols to the true and living God. Jesus explains that Jonah was an example, a type, a forerunner of the Messiah who would come. But the big difference being that where Jonah was initially disobedient and then had experienced the semblance of death and resurrection, the obedient Christ would die, he would be buried, and he would be truly resurrected on the third day. And further, the men of Nineveh would rise up at the judgment day and condemn these opponents of Jesus. Why? We read the answer in verse 41. Something or someone greater than Jonah is here. The Lord Jesus is the greater prophet with the greater message. He is not a man come from God, but God become man. And his greater message is the good news of God's love and mercy to a disobedient, rebellious, and perishing world. Jonah was a minor prophet, whereas Jesus is the Son of God himself, who addressed them time and again and urged these people to repent. Jonah, it has to be said, was initially a hard-hearted, sinful, foolish person, whereas Jesus is completely sinless and full of wisdom and compassion. Jonah's message, if you examine it in the book named after him, was one of doom, whereas Jesus presents the message of the overflowing divine love, mercy, grace, and pardon, a message of salvation that is full and free. There were no miracles or other authenticating signs to confirm Jonah's message, whereas Jesus' message was accompanied by many miracles in which prophecy was being fulfilled. Jonah's message was addressed to a people who had none of the advantages that the scribes and Pharisees and their followers had, whereas Jesus' hearers had every spiritual advantage available to them. Despite all these advantages that the Ninevites lacked, they repented, whereas most of the Israelites at the time, having all these advantages, remained in stubborn unbelief a response of rejection of Jesus and his gospel. And Jesus says, 
come the great day of judgment. The men of Nineveh, with their few advantages, will stand in condemnation over this generation of scribes and Pharisees who had so much, but so few of them responded in faith, believing in Jesus. Fascinatingly, by mentioning the miraculous sign of Jonah, the Lord Jesus is in fact saying to them, yes, I'll give you a miraculous sign. You are plotting my death. My death will be the sign plus my resurrection. You'll get what you asked for, but beware, you'll also get more than you bargained for. Secondly, the Lord Jesus responds to their request for a miraculous sign by citing the example of the Queen of the South, not a Scottish football team of the same name, by the way, variously known as the Queen of the South or the Queen of Sheba. Now, way back in the Old Testament, in King Solomon's day, this foreign royal lady made her way to Jerusalem to meet the wisest man in the world and learn from him. Jesus said, she will rise in the judgment day and condemn this highly privileged generation. Why? Because something or someone greater than Solomon is here. The Queen of Sheba, Queen of the South, braved the hardships of a lengthy and dangerous journey. Whereas the scribes and the Pharisees had the truth near at hand with an easy reach in person. <coughs> the Queen of Sheba came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, even though God's wisdom was imperfectly revealed because of Solomon's inconsistent behavior. In contrast, the scribes and Pharisees had access to Jesus, the wisest person who ever walked the face of the earth. The Queen of Sheba gave Solomon her treasures, an enormous amount of wealth. We read this in 1 Kings chapter 10. In contrast, the scribes gave Jesus nothing but rather were plotting, even at this stage, to take his very life from him. The Queen of Sheba had merely heard reports about Solomon, whereas the scribes and Pharisees heard not only reports, but heard Christ himself teaching them and performing miracles. Solomon was a wise man taught by God, whereas Jesus is God the all-wise. <clears throat> Jesus, we read in the Bible, is the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are contained. Notice what the Lord Jesus actually said to the scribes and Pharisees. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. There is indeed one miraculous sign that God has given and given to all generations since Jesus' day. It's a sign not of a white rabbit pulled out of a magician's hat, but the mighty, miraculous, all-powerful sign of a crucified 
and resurrected Savior. It is the sign compared to which all other miraculous signs, however real, pale into insignificance. If you ask for a sign of God's wrath and judgment, ask for a sign of God's holiness and justice, ask for a sign of God's wisdom and truth, ask for a sign of God's goodness and grace, ask for a sign of God's mercy and kindness, ask for a sign of God's pardon and forgiveness, and without hesitation, I'll point you to the crucified Christ for God's holiness and justice, God's wrath and judgment, God's wisdom and truth. They were all revealed in the crucifixion of Jesus, his son, whose death on the cross of Calvary was the one and only sacrifice that would fully satisfy his father as being sufficient payment for all our sin and evil, for the mercy and the kindness, for the goodness and the grace of God were revealed and demonstrated in the willingness of Jesus going to the cross as the substitute for us to bear the punishment we deserve in order that we be fully pardoned and fully forgiven. As one of the old hymns puts it, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Ask for a sign of the wisdom of God. Ask for a sign of the power of God. And without a moment's hesitation, I point you to the resurrected Christ. For in his resurrection, Jesus displayed the total extent of the defeat of all his and our enemies, including the last enemy, death itself, by triumphing over them in the life from the dead and thereby revealing himself as being the true, real, genuine, authentic Son of the living God, who is the almighty Savior available for all who will put their trust in him. Now, Easter is only a couple of weeks away, and we're in the supermarket yesterday. Uh, They're advertising it. Their shelves are stocked with chocolate eggs and fluffy bunnies. Well, that's up to them. But we in Christ's church must constantly and continuously, and I use this word with great care, advertise, if I dare use that term, advertise Christ through majoring on him and his death and resurrection, the very heart and core of the gospel message, that God loved this world so much that he gave his one and only Son by the cross to death, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God gave his Son by resurrection from the dead. Now, however you view Jesus as he is progressively revealed in the pages of the Bible, whether it's through prophecy in the Old Testament or accomplished fact in the New Testament, everything about him points us to the great love of God for us in Christ's work for our salvation. Think of this. 
the babe of Bethlehem was born to be crucified at Calvary. The carpenter of Nazareth used the materials of his trade, the wood and the nails of the cross of Calvary, to work out our full salvation. The baby boy who was born from a virgin's womb defeated death and left behind an empty tomb. Sometimes we sing these words that wonderfully affirm this great truth. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. And this is the Christ, this is the Jesus who calls each of us to come to him in faith, trusting him as our Redeemer. Be sure of this, whoever comes to him, he will never turn away. Now, we're almost finished, but there's a bit more for us to consider, and I would not be truly faithful to the text if we did not make comment on it. Verses 43 to 45, the warning of the demoniac. In order, I believe, to press home the absolute seriousness of his message, the Lord Jesus absolutely seriously emphasizes the desperately dangerous condition that this Christ-rejecting, miracle-hungry generation were in. Perhaps by pointing back to verse 23, the Lord Jesus may have used the miracle of the deliverance of the demon-possessed man as a sort of visual aid. And remember how the Lord Jesus miraculously and immediately cured the demon-possessed blind and dumb man, and how all the people reacted at the time by say, asking each other, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? And how the Pharisees reacted, it is only by the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons. Our Lord answered the Pharisees at length in verses 25 to 37 with his warning against the unpardonable sin. But the, the Lord Jesus also addresses the general public here, those who had witnessed the miracle and then asked each other, could this be the son of David? What is the point that Jesus is making in verses 43 to 45? Well, he uses this illustration of a house a rather dirty house, swept clean, that ends up eventually seven times dirtier than it was before. Why is this? The crowd expressed themselves. Could this be the son of David? They had come to the point where they were very close to expressing intellectual assent to the truth of the Bible's teaching of the person of Christ, the fulfillment of prophecy, he is indeed the son of David. But that, dear friends, is not enough. By being persuaded intellectually of the truth of the Bible's testimony concerning the Lord Jesus, it's a bit like the house being cleaned of all its dust and rubbish. 
That is, by coming to this point, every false and ignorant notion concerning who Jesus was has been swept away from their minds by the truth of the Bible's message about the person of Christ. He is indeed the promised Messiah. Their minds have been cleared out of the wrong ideas. Fine, but that's not enough. As the Apostle James tells us, even demons do that and shudder and tremble. One vital thing is lacking. One essential ingredient of the Bible's teaching of what constitutes saving faith is missing. Saving faith is not only an intellectual assent to the truth of the Bible, but is also a hearty trust in the person of Jesus. And without that hearty trust, we are lost. Our, our words, he drives up demons by the prince of demons, or are our words, could this be the son of David? If they are, verse 36 tells us of the fearful prospect that lies ahead come the day of judgment. But are our words, Lord Jesus, I trust you as my Savior. Come into my life. Come occupy my house. Come into my heart. Welcome, Lord Jesus. Committing ourselves to Christ is the act of the hearty trust that is the essential ingredient of the faith that truly saves. Let me finish by reading the words of Romans chapter 10, verses 9, 10, and 11. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. For as the Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And I urge you today, put your trust, your hearty trust in this Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would grant to each one of us the ability to put our trust in Jesus, to cry to him, Lord, save us, knowing the promise that we've just read, believing <coughs> the promise that we've just read, that when we cry to him with a heart of trust, he answers and saves us. May that be true for all of us, Lord, for we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.